Peter chapter 1, and then we will read our catechism lesson on page 44 in the back of the blue hymnal. But first we will read from God's word. Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the letter through verse 11. Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's holy word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Lord's Day 32, questions 86 and 87. Part 3 of the Catechism, thinking of our duty unto God as we serve him out of gratitude. Lord's Day 32, let's read the answers together. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. But we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? 
By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. What is the good life? What is the good life? I remember growing up and my idea of the good life mostly entailed watching sports, lounging around and not having much to do, you know, maybe a Saturday, just kind of being lazy at home. This had been a big problem after the, uh, since the Industrial Revolution, that in, in the household, there have been uh, much less chores for people to do. And so uh, mothers sometimes struggle to find enough for, to, for kids to do on a day. And so they may give uh, their eager sons or their sports-loving sons a list of chores in the morning. And uh, I maybe would be able to finish my chores at mid-morning or sometimes even earlier than that. I'd be rushing through them because to me the good life was just sort of doing whatever I wanted to do and uh, not having anything to check off and uh, just going about my day that way. I think sometimes we are caught into that pattern of thinking when it comes to our lives lived before God. And of course, it's always a constant temptation to think that since you are saved by grace, apart from works, since our standing with God is based on what Christ has done for us, and as we believe in him, as we trust in him, God cleanses us and we stand before him innocent and righteous, completely justified. That the temptation is going to be, okay, so the, the, the list of what I need to have done of standing before God and having righteousness and being guaranteed of eternal life, that's all done. And so now the good life is kind of me just doing what, whatever I want. And of course, Paul deals with that error multiple times in Scripture, no more clearly than in Romans chapter 6. The words that we just sang from Psalm 16, the way that Psalm 16 ends, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, God's word forces us to recognize that there is a connection between the joy that we have in our God and the path of life that he commands us to walk in. The path of life, living according to the ways that he has commanded, that is where we find joy because as we find joy there, we find joy in having communion with God. Those who are living the way that God commands are those who will enjoy the fullest sense of communion with him in this life and on this earth. So we need to remember that. We need to remember that the good life is connected, it's inseparable to what God has commanded. Keep all of those things in mind as we move into this last section of the catechism. And as we consider, why must we still do good? 
Well, because God commands it. And because God commands only that which is for our good, only that which is for our joy, and when we disobey God, when we rebel against him and his law, what we're going to experience is not joy, it's not flourishing, it's going to be destruction, it's going to be corruption, it's going to be decay, it's going to be death. That's one of the things we need to remember about God. Sometimes people want to think about him as a guy who just uh, sort of spouts off rules from on high. No, he is a, a holy God who commands his creatures to do that which is for their good. And not only which is for their good, but also for their joy. We find that in Second Peter chapter 1, that the good life is the God life. The good life is the life that seeks after God. Peter tells us in no uncertain terms, right from the start, what has happened. The blessing of salvation is that we have escaped corruption. What is corruption? Corruption is basically the opposite of life. It is decay. It is the the slow whittling down of the source and the power of life. In Colossians chapter 2, it is used, this word uh, corruption is used to connect to the idea of perishing, something that's going to pass away, something that's only going to be there for a little while. Many of us have, have cars that we wish we could make them last longer and longer so you don't have to buy a new one, but, uh, or at least that's the way I think about it. My dad always struggled with wanting to get the next car. That's what he's always looking forward to. He's, you know, gets to that 50,000 mile mark. Yeah, maybe I can trade this in and get a new one. I think a little bit differently. Can I get this car to 350,000 miles? Our, our cars, are, they experience corruption. They are going to pass away, not going to last forever. At some point, they're going to need to be replaced. And the, the kind of order that this world experiences under the curse of death is a, an order of corruption. It's passing away. In Galatians 6, we read this. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so there you have the, this, this proclamation from the apostle that when you live according to the flesh, in other words, when you sin, what you're going to experience is corruption. And so that which God has commanded has this connection to life. It has this connection to what brings about life and what brings about flourishing. This idea of corruption is also, it also comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is, of course, talking about the resurrection of the dead. And the very opposite of the resurrection of the dead is corruption. It's the opposite of life. In Christ, we have been given this blessing that frees us from corruption. In other words, freed from decay, freed from that power that uh, has sway in this current world that whittles down life. In Christ. We've been set free from that. In Christ, we have been connected to true and eternal life. But corruption is in this world, we read in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's in this world because of evil desires. What is an evil desire? An evil desire is any time any human being wants to do something against what God has commanded us to do. The first sin in the Garden of Eden... Uh, when Eve was led astray and Adam went with her, 
there was an evil desire to be the one who determines what is right and wrong. It's basically what it came down to, right? Uh, Eve fell into the temptation of the serpent that you will actually, you will be the one who decides what is good and evil. You be the one who exercises that authority. And that, of course, evil desire brought about all of the sin that we know in this world. All sin is characterized by wanting something which God has not commanded. First John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions or the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there is an inseparable connection between what is morally good, what God has commanded, and the flourishing of life. We may convince ourselves, and human beings do a very good job of convincing themselves, that what actually is best for their pleasure, what actually is best for their joy, and what actually is best for their flourishing is living according to their own ideas of what's right and wrong, of doing whatever they think is right, or or, or living their life, ordering their life according to what they want to do. But sin is like jumping off of a building and thinking you're flying and enjoying the, the feeling for a few seconds of feeling weightless. And convincing yourself that you're not plummeting to your death, but that you are flying. That's what sin is when we live according to evil desires. So the good life is found in obeying God. It's found in humbly submitting to his word. And what scripture tells us is that this actually, it doesn't become like the, the, the boyhood, uh, my boyhood worst nightmare of my mom coming up with a list that will extend from 7 a.m. Saturday to 7 p.m. and totally take up my day off with just things to do and things around the house. That's not what obedience in Scripture is. Scripture tells us that when we obey God, when we walk in the path of life, it actually uh, pushes us forward into the greatest enjoyment of God, into the greatest enjoyment of our own existence, and into all kinds of spiritual blessings that follow from it. A life lived according to evil desires, a life that is steeped in sin and rebellion against God, is a life of destruction. It's a life of corruption. It's a life that will eventually not have life. And so you think about the many things that God has commanded in his word. And we can go right on down the line and we can show that actually what God has commanded is for our joy, it's for our good, it's for our peace. For instance, why is adultery or extramarital sex wrong? Because it's destructive to our whole person. We were made... We were created to enjoy that physical intimacy in the context of a lifelong covenantal relationship where a husband and a wife are committed to one another to stay together for the rest of their lives. And that is the only context in which we can enjoy that blessing of physical intimacy that God has given to us as his creatures. If it happens anywhere else, 
it's destructive to us because it has to happen in the context of trust and love and stability. That's the way God has created us. And so what he has prohibited through his commands is because he, is because he has prohibited it because it's destructive to us. And you can see evidence all around us for how destructive it is in our world. Why is homosexuality wrong? Why is it sinful? Because it forces people to use their bodies in ways that God has not designed them to be used. It's not in accord with how God has made us. It's not in accord with how he has designed us. And there's all kinds of evidence that show life expectancy be way shorter in the homosexual community. All kinds of other problems crop up because of those things. Why is something like transgenderism wrong? Because it shakes the fist at God, the one who made you, the one who gave you your body, and you say to God, I am not pleased with what you have given me. I am going to change it. I am going to alter it. I am going to mutilate it. All of these things and many more are things that promise freedom. They promise joy. They promise peace, they promise flourishing, but all they give are enslavement. All they can give are slavery. Later on in 2 Peter, the apostle will say that there are many who entice by sensual passions of the flesh and they are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. What a wonderful summary of what's going on in our over-sexualized culture. It promises freedom. It promises freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption, decay, death. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So the good life is the God life. And in Christ we have been set free from corruption. And so the reasoning of the apostle is if you have been set free from the order of corruption and decay and death, then how could you convince yourself that the right way for you to live is within the context of corruption and decay? To live according to your evil desires, which is to bring about corruption in your own heart, in your own soul, you're living the opposite of, uh, or the opposite order in which God has placed you. He's placed you in the kingdom of light. He's placed you in the kingdom of his, lo- of, of his life and of flourishing. Therefore, we are to take great joy in living the way that God has commanded. You need to be absolutely convinced that what God has commanded me to do, how God has commanded me to live, it's not only for my good because I see the long-term effects of sin, it's actually for my joy. It's actually for my peace and my comfort in this life. It actually is the good life to obey him and to serve him. Because when we obey him and when we serve him, we are doing that for which we were created. God created you to obey him. He created you to walk in the paths of his life. He created you to take joy in his commandments. And when you don't do that, when you live according to evil desires then you are living according to the order of corruption. So we are set free 
from that in Christ, set free from corruption, uh, made citizens of a new order, a resurrection order, an order of eternal life. Because of that, we are to give effort to make progress in our faith and progress in our sanctification. So the Christian life is. We are to give effort to make progress in our faith and progress in our sanctification. We're saved by grace and the temptation is always going to be just kick back and say, it's all taken care of. There's, There's nothing left for me to do. I'm saved by grace. And kick back and be lazy spiritually the rest of my life. But that's not what we are called to. What does the catechism say? What's the doctrine that the catechism gives to us? All those who are justified will be sanctified. All those who are set right with God in Christ Jesus and given the gift of the Holy Spirit, they, God will work in them to bring about greater degrees of holiness as they live on this earth, as they live in this life. Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit. That's the great, one of the great mysteries of the Christian life. The body decays, the body withers away, the body gets old and dies, but each and every day, God strengthens and renews us spiritually. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. The body grows weak, the soul, the spirit, grows strong in Jesus Christ. So God is to be praised in the lives of his people. The, the, the catechism says, we live this way so that God may be praised by us. What is the greatest desire of our souls? The renown, the glory of God. We are to be caught up with a vision for the glory of God, saying what I want more than anything else is for my God to be glorified. I don't want to, uh, the, the thing that I want the most is not sort of this, this bucket list of my life I want to achieve, and those things may be good, what we want to achieve and what we want to do, what we want to experience. But what we want most is the glory of God, that God would be praised by us in our lives. We also are to have the desire that we would live in such a way that our neighbors may be one for Christ, as the Catechism says. We are to be a peculiar people on this earth. We, we are to, to live in a certain way, to live according to the law of love, to live according to the law of Christ, to live selflessly and to live with utter conviction in all that God has commanded. We also read that living in God-empowered obedience is an aid to our assurance. It's a help to our assurance. So many, uh, one of the great Christian struggles is assurance. How do I know that I'm a child of God? How do I know that I am one of the elect, that I am one that God has Chosen. Well, one of the things that we do, this is not the only place we go for our assurance, but the Catechism says that we live a life of obedience so that each of us may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. What does James 2 say? James 2 says, uh, faith that is real is a faith that has fruits accompanying it. A faith that is real is a faith that has fruits accompanying it. And so as you see God working in your life, bringing about greater degrees of holiness and obedience, a greater satisfaction in him, a greater desire to know him more, as you see God working in your life that way, then you have a greater sense of assurance, of knowing his love, of knowing peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So first, Second uh, Peter chapter 1 says, make every effort, make every effort, give effort into experiencing all of these things about the Christian life. What is effort in the context of the gospel? Right? Because we're always, you can never leave uh, the doctrine of the gospel. It's always the gospel that empowers us. You always have to understand uh, the issues of the Christian life in the context of the gospel. So what does Christian effort look like? Well, this is a, a definition that old Pastor Dan came up with this week. Effort, Christian effort, is the God-empowered, spirit-wrought diligence to live each moment for the glory of God within the context of the gospel of grace. Understanding that as God is the author of our good works, only we can carry them out. Let me unpack that a little bit. So, we are to have diligence to live each moment for the glory of God. That's what we are to strive to. What within the gospel of grace, within the context of the gospel of grace. In other words, you can never start to think about your standing before God You can never start to think about the Christian life as something that is dependent upon your own works. It will always be the merit of Christ. And you are to live each and every moment by faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in what he has done for you. Not what you have done for yourself, not what you have done for others. You always trust in what Christ has done for you. That is the only thing that can reconcile you to God. But we are to give effort to live for his glory and we are to understand that God is the author of our good works. He's the author, the fountain of them. But they can only be carried out by you. You are the only one who can carry out the good works that God has ordained for you to do. God calls you to live sacrificially, to live for others, to live serving others so there may be someone in your life that God brings into your life and he has authored he has ordained that you would serve them in a special way and that the power to do that comes from God but only you are the one who does it there's a mystery of God's sovereignty there and you are to give effort that these kinds of things would be seen in your life and so in second Peter 1 He has all kinds of examples. What are things that we are to seek for our spiritual good? Well, we are to seek virtue. You notice in the NIV it just says goodness. We are to to add to our faith goodness. The word there is basically virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is moral excellence. It's wisdom in action. It's looking at the world, knowing the way, that seeing God's order and the way things fit together and saying the right way to live is a life of wisdom and moral excellence. To seek honor within the context of God's law. To, to live in a way that all people would look at it and say that is a decent person. Someone who lives according to regular moral standards. We are to, so we are to seek that, to add that to our faith, to be a good and virtuous person. We also are to seek to add knowledge to our virtue. We should seek to grasp the deep things about the Christian faith. We should never be anti-intellectual. We who have been, who have been made to know God in Jesus Christ ought to know that we have a moral responsibility to learn about God and his word. 
He gives us his word for a reason. He wants us to learn it. He wants us to learn from it. He wants us to seek to know it more. It doesn't mean that all of us ought to have publishing book deals or anything like that. But we are to seek to know God more. We are to seek to add to our knowledge self-control. If we cannot control our actions, then who are we really serving? Remember 2 Peter. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. If you can't say no to something, then that thing controls you. And you are serving that thing. You're addicted to something, and you can't say no to it. Then you serve that thing. It is your Lord. We are to seek self-control to add that to our knowledge. And then we are to seek perseverance to add to our self-control. Perseverance is an ability to remain steadfast under trial. That no matter what the circumstances are, you're not going to be swayed to the right or the left. You're not going to become a different person under different circumstances. James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We are to seek to add godliness to our perseverance. This is more than moral excellence. Is a virtue is the moral excellence, the goodness. But here you have godliness. And this is a desire to reflect the character of God. To reflect the kind of goodness that he shows that go above and beyond human expectations of goodness. So, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us a good example of this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, in the world, the normal way that people would expect you to live is to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, love them both. And then he says this, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you're reflecting the character of God when you seek to love those who do not love you. Because God is a God who loves those who had rebelled against him. Who He loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them, that he might reconcile them to him. So love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. In other words, godliness is a virtue in light of Christ. It's a a moral excellence that only Christianity knows. Spirit-empowered and sacrificial primarily. And then we are to seek, finally, brotherly affection and love. And both of those, they are related and also distinct. The Greek words Philadelphia and agape, unconditional love and brotherly affection. We are to put effort, to make every effort to add those qualities, those virtues to our faith. In the context of the gospel, always trusting Christ, understanding that God is the author of all of our good works, but he has ordained that we would carry them out. We are to live trusting that God's will for us is to carry out good works each and every day because he has ordained them to be the way that we would walk to heaven. Good works are not what save us. 
Good works are not what reconcile us to God, but what we see again and again and again is the life that God has called us to live, the road that he has called us to walk down, is the road of good works. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul says, do that. And you may say, well, how do I do that? What you do is you live by faith in the Son of God. You live by faith in Christ, trusting that God is going to finish his work of sanctification in you. He's bringing about it within you a sanctified holiness that only he knows that he has ordained and you live trusting in him to do it. So you make every effort to live diligently unto these things. 1 John 3, everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself. As he is pure, we purify ourselves when we live according to the grace of God. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us to renounce all of those things. Some people hear the message of grace, and they say, well, that means you can do whatever you want to do. Titus chapter 2 says, grace appears and it trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives, godly lives. James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God calls us to make every effort diligence to seek him to glorify him because he has ordained that we would live this way isn't it fascinating that in second peter chapter one he says you do these things you have these qualities what you what is you're going to experience is you're going to make your calling and election sure what peter means there is not that uh it's going to to make it certain in a way that it wasn't before God's calling, God's election are always sure, they are always certain. But in the way that we experience and know the calling and the election of God, when we see and experience his working in us to bring about greater degrees of holiness and Christ-likeness and satisfaction and joy in him, then each and every day we know a little bit more of the calling and the election and the sovereignty of God. So we consider all of these things, isn't it obvious, brothers and sisters, why we must still do good works and live good lives? Because they are ordained by God, because we have been changed from uh, corruption to life, we've been taken from the kingdom of corruption, brought into the kingdom of life, and because that which God commands us to do It's not only for our long-term good, it's for our joy and our flourishing now. To live in accordance with his commands, to live in accordance with his law, ought to be the greatest joy and the desire of our souls. We may convince ourselves, we may convince ourselves of otherwise, that the true life of enjoyment and pleasure is following evil desires and passions. Scripture tells us uh, something different indeed. For the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction we have in the next life and in this 
is to know deeply of the communion and the fellowship that we can have with God. And so Galatians 6 says that the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, same word, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? It means to live in faith of what God is doing in you by the Spirit. He promises you, you you trust in Christ, he promises you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So you sow to the Spirit, living in faith of what God is doing in you. That's what it means uh, to sow to the Spirit, and that's what it means to make every effort to add these things to your faith, trusting and knowing that God is doing them in you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the message of grace, the message of salvation. We are so thankful that we are reconciled to you by your grace. And yet we consider where your word calls us to live these lives that may strike us as very regimented or disciplined. But help us to see and know that your path is the path of life. And there we will find joy and peace and satisfaction. Help us to renounce the false gospel of this world that puts so many things before our eyes and ultimately cannot give and deliver on any of its promises. So help us to know and glory in and take joy in the fellowship that we have with you, our creator, as we have that fellowship in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.